This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, on the second Sunday of Advent, I want to take some time, and I want to look at a few scriptures, um, and then I want to ask a question, a very important question. Uh, all of these scriptures, I'll, I'll, I'll look at just a verse or two in each of them, except for the, the first, and that is the quintessential Christmas text from Matthew 1. So look at it with me. Let's read through these. And I think they all kind of have a a golden uh, strand that weaves through them. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. Please, please hear that phrase. The birth of the Messiah took place in this way. The matter of God coming to the earth what we know as the Incarnation, is an incredibly deep, magnificent theological fact. But the Scripture says not only is the matter that God came important, but the manner in which God came, we can learn something from as well. It's interesting to me, and I don't think that I had ever noticed it even before this week, that the Scripture points to that, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. The coming of God looked like this. This is how God did it. And the how is almost as important as the what. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you ought to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. We know it as chapter 7, verse 14. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means, here it is, God with us. Another text, this one from the Johannan community years later, one of the later texts from the biblical text we know as the New Testament. 1 John 1, verse 1. We'll just read one verse here. John says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, watch this, whom we have heard and seen. And then very personally, the writer says, We saw him with our own eyes. And we not only saw him with our own eyes, but we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. From another community, the Petrine community, we know this as 2 Peter 1, and this may actually be the latest of New Testament Testament texts written, but the same thing, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables or myths. We weren't making up stories when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we told you the story of how God came in Jesus, We were not making the story up. But Peter affirms, the writer John, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
Now listen to Paul, our great theologian from the first century. Just a portion of a verse, Colossians 1, 15. I wish I could read the whole chapter to you, but listen. Christ is the visible, listen to that. Christ, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So you want to see the invisible God? Look at Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Almost the same thing from Hebrews 1, verse 3. The sun radiates God's own glory. Jesus radiates the glory of God and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Jesus expresses the very character. Look at that second line, the very character of God. Now, finally, from Jesus himself, John 14, 6 through 9, at the end of his life, Jesus told the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know my Father. You would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Did you hear what he just said? From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said, very confused, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Listen to Jesus now. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Are you putting together what's being said here? Show us the Father. <sighs> Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Considering the fact during this Christmas season, during this season of Advent, that we have believed for 2,000 years that Jesus, in a very special, direct way, was God living a human life. Considering the fact that all of these texts we have spun together, woven together, and as an early church, we came to the conclusion that God literally did manifest God's self in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. A question comes to my mind, and I think it's an important question for all of us. And that question is, when? When did God manifest God's self in the person of Jesus? When did we see God, using the language of the text, when did we see God reflected in Jesus? That's a good question. When did we see God reflected in Jesus? At what point in the life of Jesus did he represent, as one of the texts said, did he represent God exactly? When did Jesus visibly represent the invisible God? When could it be said of him, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? We know he said it at the end of his life. How early could he have said, or even before he could say, how early could someone have looked at Jesus and said, when you've seen him, you have seen God? At what point in those 30-some-odd years 
of Jesus' ministry, did we actually learn what God was like by looking at Jesus? That's a good way of saying it. At what point in the life of Jesus could we actually look at him and say, we just learned what God is like? Was it at 30? I mean, that would be uh, my knee jerk when he was defying natural laws and walking on water and healing blind people and straightening crooked legs. And was it at 30 when he sat down with the Pharisees, when he sat down with his disciples, when he sat down with those who followed him and he said things that they walked away saying, never a man spake like this man. Was it the servant on the mount? Blessed are those who are meek. Was there a resonance and a tone in his voice there? Was it at his resurrection when he defied the power and the permanence of death by getting up and getting out of the grave and leaving the grave closed there? If you want to stretch backwards, was it some two decades earlier when at the ripe age of 12 he nonplussed the leaders in the temple, amazing them with his insight and his answers? The, the Bible said they later said, as I aforementioned, never a man spake like this man. They could have well said at that moment, never a man spake like this boy. Was it there? Or was it even earlier in those non-canon events in the life of Jesus. He lived a lot of life before he stepped into his ministry. Was it earlier that we were able to see God in those years that we don't have recorded? Was there something about God that we could have learned if we knew to insightfully look as he was pre-ministry? Well, for that matter, pre-adulthood, pre-teen, pre-adolescent, before he walked. Not simply before he talked and spake like never a man spake, but before he could talk when he was a baby. The text said, now, God came to the world like this. And interestingly, it doesn't say God came to the world like this, and he stepped out onto the scene and just started healing people, walking on water, floating and glowing. No, God came to the world like this. Could we see God in the baby, Christ Jesus? Was there ever a time, oh, this is a good way of saying it, was there ever a time in the life of Jesus when we couldn't see God? Was there ever an age, was there ever a moment, and I know, and I just need to get this out now as I talk about the baby Jesus, Will Ferrell definitely <laughs> believed that you could see God in the baby Jesus and had a high affinity for him. In what movie was it? Talladega Nights that some of you carnal people watched. <laughs> but I only heard about because it was above a G rating. The angel told Joseph, he said, as he breathes his first breath, as you're holding him for the first time, as that little baby's shoulders and bottom fits in your two palms, as you watch him squinting to adjust his eyes to the dim light of a torch lamp, call him Emmanuel. Don't wait for miracles, don't wait for teachings, don't even wait for him to walk and talk. Hold that baby and call him God with us. For me, that moment is beyond subtlety, intimation, implication, 
The angel was incredibly clear as our own Mark Lowry, who helped to start this church and was such a part of it in those early days. Mary, did you know, he wrote, when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God. It's not difficult for us to list the things about him in his adulthood, in his ministry that bespoke his divinity. But what of God could we possibly see in his infancy? That is the question of the season of Advent, and that is dare, why we dare not take one day and celebrate it as the Christmas theme, the Christmas story. But we set aside a month of time to circle around the manger, to gather our wits, and to ask ourselves questions like this. What of God could we possibly learn of God in God's infancy when God was a baby? You see, if Jesus was indeed fully human, and that was a big wrestling match in the early church, this is surprising to some, but the early church pretty quickly got over and into the idea that Jesus was God. Surprisingly, their biggest wrestling match was whether or not he was truly human. Entire movements of the early Christian church, um, movements like the Docetics, uh, rose up substantial size movements in the early Christian church throughout the second and third century did not believe in the humanity of Jesus. You know why? Because they believed in his divinity and they did not possibly think that God could possibly taint God's self with, a human, with human contact, with human expression. Probably a hangover from old Plato's dualism and the material world that was carnal and the spiritual world of ideas and forms that was good. Well, the church... Many of them bought into that, and they knew he was divine, but they couldn't imagine that he was human. Finally, we wrestled it through and said, here's the great mystery. He was fully human and fully divine. And we learn an incredible amount from both of those things. And if indeed he was fully human, then he was fully human, and he was fully divine at every stage. He was fully divine at every stage of human development. Now, later the creeds generalized, and the creeds said things like, it was strong religious theological language, the creeds affirmed that he was fully God and fully man. But let the creeds also note that if he was indeed fully God and fully man, then let us say it this way, he was fully God and he was fully teenager. He was fully God and he was fully adolescent. He was fully God and he was fully a prepubescent boy. He was fully God and he was fully child. He was fully God and some get more squeamish the farther you go. He was fully God and he was fully toddler. He was fully God and he was fully baby. And so those of us that spend our year learning from that man, Christ Jesus, this is the season when we uncomfortably settle in to ask ourselves, was there anything God wanted us to learn about God's self by looking at God when God had consigned himself to the infancy of Jesus? And to go back again to Paul's language and use it here was there anything of the invisible God made visible by this newborn? When we peer down into that manger and pull back the swaddling clothes and gaze upon that baby who can barely wrap its fingers 
Fingers that dredged out Niles and Ganges and Mississippis. Thumbprints that imprinted the world with Caspian and Black Seas. And he wraps that divine hand around the finger of a young teenage girl. When we gaze upon that baby, what does that baby tell us? What does that baby make visible about the invisible God? Melissa's going to come back and she's going to sing the song that she just sang in a moment and we'll hopefully hear it and see it through a different lens. <clears throat> Let me do something now for several reasons. <clears throat> One of which, some things you write to preach and some things you write for books. And the more I looked at this today, the more I realized that this was a soliloquy born and written for myself but one that I would like you to hear into, and it will take less time for me simply to read this chapter of a book that I'm going to write someday. When we see Jesus, we see God. And the question today has been begged, what do we see of this God when we see him in the form of a baby? Forgive the syntax, but I'll try to make this work for you. The infinite, lofty, eternal God, power of powers, greater power than we conceive. What we learn of God when God comes in this way, when God comes like this, when God comes as a baby, what we learn of this God is that God, for reasons perhaps unknown to us, strategically abandons that power. For reasons unknown to us, God strategically abandons the power to create a universe out of nothing, abandons, let go, lets go of, relinquishes that he might come near us. Philippians 2 says, not only did God humble God's self and condescend to the form of a man, but the nativity scenes enjoin that he humbled himself even to the life of a baby. Ultimately, a story we will tell in four months is just as scandalous to our mind, and that is that this one who became a baby not only abandoned power for a manger and a crib, but he also abandoned power for a cross. And those lips that whispered, let there be light, and billions and trillions of stars illuminated the expanse, those same lips, parched and broken, blood, sweat, tears, and mucus matted about them, whispered soft, I am thirsty. What do we learn from this God who hangs on a cross? What do we learn from this God who wrestles in the womb of a woman? What do we learn, coming back now simply to Advent, this season of Christmas, what do we learn as we see God barely seeing, hardly hearing, scarcely thinking? Look at that frail, prone child and hear the angels. Hear the angels as they sing about that crib that is God in that manger. Oh, brothers and sisters, God is saying something in the incarnation, something about his own nature. And as the divine infant cries, as any baby cries, God is telling us something profound, if we will but hear it. God is speaking to us with the hungry belly of a baby and the wet diaper of a same. 
what God is saying in this massive condescension is not only true of God in this incarnate experience. It is not a parenthesis of God, but it is true of God at all times and in all places. For Jesus was not a 33-year experiment for God. Jesus was not three decades of fact-finding for God. Jesus was a simple portal into the reality of God as God had always been. And that is, listen now, that God in relation to creation, that God in relation to us at times, for reasons perhaps again only known to God, but reasons I think that we can fairly speculate. God at times willingly forfeits power. God specifically forfeits power. God forfeits control. God forfeits power and control that is certainly his right to retain. Philippians 2 said not only did God forfeit that power in an ultimate condescension to earth, even the birth of a baby, the death on a cross, but Philippians 2 says something even more remarkable. Per God's disposition on this matter, he thought it not robbery. Listen. He thought it not robbery. He felt not cheated, in no way taken advantage of, even by himself. He thought it not robbery to give up omnicontrol, to give up omnicausation, to give up even omnipresence and omnipotence. This God who was fully capable of retaining those things gave them up. We see this divine forfeiture most clearly in the incarnation. And if you are a reader of the Hebrew scriptures, you know as well as I that it is with great relief that we leave that text and come to a manger and the touchable face of a best friend. And yet, through the lens of Jesus, we go back to those Hebrew scriptures. And we see again a God whose heart has the capacity to be broken, a God whose will has the ability to be stood against, a God who stands on the border between Israel and Assyria and cries out for his people like a heart-stricken teenage lover, oh Ephraim, how shall I give thee up? How can I let you go? We see this divine forfeiture in all of the sacred text but we see this divine forfeiture most clearly in the incarnation. And in the incarnation, we see this idea of divine forfeiture and the giving up of power most clearly in the baby. A God who forfeits power in terms of control, a God who forfeits power in the very act of creation and creating other than God's self. The greater message is that what we see God doing in the baby is indicative of God at all times. When God gave humanity free will, when God gave human beings the power to choose, God gave up total control willingly. God made God's self subject to the whims and the caprice and the brokenness of humanity. If that for some reason strikes you as ludicrous, then you need only look back to that starlit night in Bethlehem when God was born of a woman and the angel prompted a man
to whisper over that child, Emmanuel. And in this humble act of seeding power was nothing less than a word picture. God illustrating definitively, definitively what he had been doing from the beginning of creation as he shifted himself uncomfortably amidst the straw with the cattle lowing near. Strategically, there was God giving up power. There was God giving up causation in exchange for things he valued far more. Things like love and respect and mutuality. Emmanuel, the angel whispered to Joseph, does not mean God controls us. Emmanuel does not mean God is bigger than us or stronger than us. Emmanuel does not mean God over us. Emmanuel means God with us. Paraclete, Holy Spirit would not mean God above, it would mean God alongside. For that reason, the old man John would look back on the life of Jesus, John whose eyes saw him, John whose eyes, whose hands touched him, John would look back and struggle to give an ultimate definition of God. John would struggle for three chapters until finally he came to it. God is, and of all the things he could have said, God is sovereign, God is just, God is big, God is powerful. John said there are a lot of words. Earlier he said if the whole world were a library, it couldn't contain the books that would satisfy the definition of that man, that God. But give me one word out of all those books, out of that entire library, Give me one word. John said God is love. And it is God's love that trumps any inclination of God to control us, even when that's what we ask of him. And John would later write that this God stands at the door of every heart and he knocks. My God, don't you know he could kick it down? But he stands at the door and knocks. The Apostle Paul whispers, let the peace of God that the angels sang about on that hillside long ago in that chorus that the shepherds heard, let the peace of God rule in your heart. But the pivotal word there is not peace. The pivotal word is not even God. The pivotal word is the first word, let. Because God has forfeited his ability to force and perhaps it was no forfeiture at all because that would be the opposite of love and God ultimately, by definition, is love. This is why God lets go of power. This is why God gives away power. It is love. If a baby can do anything, it is that capacity to engender love. If a baby weak and restless, without words, can do anything. It is the ability to open our hearts up and draw them down into that manger, down into that eight pounds of flesh. And the writer said, this is how God came. With no force, with no strength abiding. He left it all somewhere with the angels. 
And he came down, 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 and lay in the form of a baby and whispered without words, would you love me? I will not make you. And in this world where babies can be cherished and babies can be put in trash bins, in this world where the helpless and the harmless are so prone and vulnerable. God comes to us not as king, and he chooses not to come through Rome, the Senate, nor the Caesar. He looks down, down, down to the Levant, to this little backroads place that no one believed anything good could came, come out of, and he picked a little teenage girl, and he even let the story be told that he was illegitimate by birth. He could not find his way to the farthest margin to make his statement more clear. Down, 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 he released the power. Oh, he wanted us to know who he had always been. And why should the thought of God giving be strange? For God is love and God so love he gave. And he doesn't give someone else's stuff. He sacrificially gives his own. He gives his son a sign of his own right hand, a sign of his strength, a sign of his vulnerability. Because every parent knows when a son or daughter is born, it takes your heart out of your chest and goes a walking through this world. And in the giving of his son, the gift was actually the gift of power, control, and dominance. And in Jesus Christ, that one who stood on the day before his own crucifixion, and the Bible said he knew that all power was given into his hands, he looked at those two small human hands knowing they were the hands of God. And when he knew that all power was given into his hands, he took off his outer robe and he wrapped himself in a towel and he stooped down to the feet of a man named Judas and he scrubbed between his dirty toes and he cleaned those feet that they might walk away to betray him. And the God of eternity said, can you hear me? Can you hear what I'm trying to tell you? As he stands and tries to explain to Pilate, incredulous, no man takes my life, sir. Know you not that I could call a million angels from heaven right now. And oh, that's the kind of God I want. A God who saves my nation, saves my life, fixes my troubles. That's the kind of God I want. A God who erupts, bursts in on, defies human will, rides across roughshod the ways of man. But he stands there. No, yea, he hangs there with birds of prey pecking at the scab blood dried on his face in the mid-morning sun, and he whispers, I'm thirsty, forgive them. In this, I ask us before Melissa sings, what do we learn of a God who in that baby lavishly repudiates control so that we might look at him as we had never looked at him and say, he is with us. He is not against us. He is with us. And I ask you, doesn't that require a bigger, more powerful God than if God chose to be the great bully in the sky? Oh, how our relationship would be different if that were so. 
Don't we ordinarily regard the compulsion of people to meticulously control everything as evidence of weakness? Don't we ordinarily regard those who have power in our lives and wield it like a dagger? Don't we regard them as pathological in form? People whom we regard as control freaks are not the top of our respect list. In a relationship to micromanage and control is a sign of unhealth, even a lack of love. A sign of selfishness, insecurity, and weakness. Bullies may impress children and psychologically malformed adults, but they do not impress healthy people. No doubt amongst humans, too often the power we choose is sheer control, and no doubt we clamor over one another's bodies for its gain. But those of us who long for control and long for power, we must not project onto God our own pathologies. For in Jesus Christ, and especially in that baby in the manger, God reminds us that power is the servant of love, not its master. And when at last, John said, we beheld him on the throne, we beheld not a Caesar, we beheld one not with leaves of dignity wrapped and draped around his head, but we beheld, and John said, my God, when we saw the throne of all eternity, there was a lamb, not a lion, and even that lamb was slain in the midst of that throne. In Jesus, God says, look into this manger and hear me, power is the servant of love, not its master. And finally, through the ages, many of us have found comfort in believing God is in control of everything. We say it with not thinking, without thinking through what we're saying. We say it because we're afraid and we're scared. We say it because we know our bad decisions damn us. We say it because we want God to fix what is so broken in this world. Through the ages, we have found comfort in believing God is in control of everything, even every human decision. Everything is predetermined. God's the cause of it all. Sovereignty, we call that. But ultimately, the logical conclusions of this are terribly disturbing. Could God possibly be in control of a stepfather who uses his little stepchild's arms as an ashtray, could God possibly be in control of a world where children are abused? If this were not the case, someone says, then you're telling us God has lost control? No. It is far better than that. God has not lost control because God could never lose control but he could give it away. No one could turn God into a baby or hang God on a cross except God. And friends, this is what we learned from the time when God was a baby, that God is lavish with power, not clutching, not grabbing, not clamoring, not amassing, for Lord Acton was right, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God strategically 
when it served love's goals, joyfully and willingly gave it away, even to the crib of a baby. And in giving away that power, he has allowed us to stand up, and from that manger, manger God has whispered, you are large, you there. You are large because I've made you large. How large are you? You are large enough, teenage girl, to birth God into this world. How large are you? You are large enough to hang him on a cross. For Easter and Christmas are not historical moments to be regurgitated. They are spiritual realities that again we come to today. That's how large you are. God came small that we might realize how large we are. I grew up believing prayer was me asking God, why don't you do something about this? And through that manger I learned God is asking me, why don't you do something about this? This is one of the lessons we learn through as Will Ferrell called him appropriately, baby Jesus. And I agree, I do love him dear. Listen to this song again through this lens. Falling 
Pray together. Father, thank you for making us large. Thank you for not being the pathological parent who cannot let go. Thank you for not turning us into 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 year old children. Never weaned. Thank you for sitting down when we needed to stand up. Thank you for clearing space that we might grow. May we learn from that manger. May we learn from that manger your heart to be with us. And I admit, Lord, especially now, sometimes the net effect of this I don't always like there are times that I would rather have a pre-programmed universe there are times I suppose I would rather have a God who swoops in the eternal parent who fixes it when I see a world crippled when I feel staggered when I just want to run home and turn it all over to you Thank you, Lord, in the manger. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that comes alongside for making us in your image, for stepping back and giving us space to grow and to actualize that divinity that's bred into the fiber of our being. And finally, Lord, forgive us for making sheer strength and control power and dominance the most exalted characteristics and even imposing them upon you this may be the way we treat one another this may be the way that we do work and nations it might even be the way we do religion but thank you Lord that you took off your robe and you told every president and every pharaoh and every pastor If you really want to understand power find yourself at the feet of people serve them oh thank you sweet Christ for this season of Advent thank you Lord that you are indeed love and we are not nervous now because love never ever Though muscle does, love doesn't. Though power does, muscle doesn't. Love never, thank you, Lord. Love never, ever fails. Take us from this place today and let us hear you say, why don't you do something about it? May we spread that love everywhere we go. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace. And be 
good to one another. God bless you. We'll see you in the house of the Lord next week.